Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today, my guest is one of my favorite people on the planet. We have Erin Vleck with us, who, if you're a fan of the show, you've heard her work before. So why don't we start off with the case of the Yuletide Bride, which was part of uh, the Jeffrey Sykes Vermilion universe. We did one prior to that, the case of the Black Lodge. And then, of course, for Christmas, we did the case of the Yuletide Bride. And we have coming up this season, the case of the Signet Ring. So let's talk a little bit about the case of the Yuletide Bride and maybe some of the inspiration for that story and, you know, how it ties into the, the larger world of, of Jeffrey Sykes Vermillion. I know it's the first time we meet Audrey Hawkwood. Hawkwood. I was going to say Lockwood, but I knew that wasn't right. It's <laughs> Hawkwood. Uh, so it's the first time we meet Audrey. And, and of course, we've we've already met uh, his, his other associate as part of the case of the Black Lodge. So he has kind of this entourage that he's traveling with uh, in a way, I guess. Exactly. And Audrey is, uh, this this story is pretty much, uh, it's set in Audrey's family estate in upstate New York uh, at Christmas time. And the only two, um, her, along with her family and other sundry characters, uh, Sykes, Vermillion and Audrey are the only two from the uh occult detective world, shall we say. And Audrey is a young girl. She's uh, a young woman, uh, but she's just become Vermillion's um, assistant, if you will. She started out at his as his secretary and proved that she was worthy to the task. So we're um, getting to meet this new member of the party, Audrey, and finding out a little bit uh, about her and a little close-up of uh, what she what she's made of. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, it's a Christmas story. I absolutely adore mystery Christmas stories. So it gave me an opportunity to play with something I've been wanting to play with for a long time. And I love Christmas. So it was perfect. 
Yeah, and we get a chance to to kind of uh, visit the the gin, which I know has been uh, part of your work as well over the yes. years. And and I always I always enjoy that. We we got it. We got a chance to work them in later coming up this season for part of the the private collector series. We get to, to kind of delve into the gin with the the son of smokeless fire. And I think that was I think that was a request of mine whenever we first started. I was like, we got to work the gin in at some point. Well, and the gin are very much a part of my cosmology. Right, and, right. Um, having a degree in Islamic studies and uh, a real fondness for the jinn, I have tried to use the jinn in ways that are canon, if you will, but uh, a little perhaps new to the way a lot of Western readers and viewers and audiences have seen the jinn portrayed. Exactly. And that's they're one not, of the... They're not just one thing. Exactly right. Yeah, it's one of the things that I, I've, I've enjoyed about kind of going on this journey with you and working on these episodes is, you know, you bring a lot of authoritative information to it. It's not kind of the the stereotypical view of these things. You have, you know, in your own life been involved in the occult and, and this type of thing. So there is a lot of authenticism, if that's a word, that you can bring to these things that I've always found very interesting in stories. Yeah, I try to uh, remain true to, like I, like I said, canon with all of the different uh, genres and magical types and magical critters and creatures that I use. So it's, um, it's, it's creative uh, within my own context, but I stay within the confines of what you would find in a, a larger culture that approaches those particular paradigms. And we have, of course... With the two detectives, with Frank Enfield uh, from The Private Collector and, of course, Jeffrey Sykes Vermillion, um, we have these these two kind of occult detectives, right? I mean, they're um, – I don't know – I don't think that they're the same at, at all, uh, but they, they kind of live in the same type of universe, as it were. Yeah, they kind of do the same job in their own in their own sort of way, maybe to different classes of people, because we've got uh, Jeffrey Sykes Vermillion, who's an older man, uh, kind of a David Niven kind of uh, suave character, if you will, who has uh, pretty much mastered uh, all of the world's magical traditions that he has engaged in. So he's kind of set in his ways. I'm not saying he can't still learn a thing or two, but he's the grand master, uh, if you will, and as I say, a very smooth suave character now uh, juxtaposed to him uh, in his other in his own world is um, the um, the New York City gumshoe Frank Enfield and he is just a dude he's just a 1940s guy you know I mean he uses some crude language now and then and he's you know um, he, and he start, when we first meet Enfield he's kind of cocky he's a working occult detective got an office and everything Mm -hmm. and um but he goes on a journey and he finds out that he doesn't know everything about the occult world and he gets on a roller coaster ride throughout the series and that's all i'll say about that but (laughs) um there's a lot of cover there's a lot of territory covered and no two episode is the same yeah, and, and we do have a, I mean, a difference of, of time setting, of course, as well. I mean, uh, for Vermillion, we're we're kind of looking at the same era as like Murder at the or- Murder on the Orient Express, set in like the exactly. the 1930s. Um, and then whenever we get into Enfield, we're looking at you know the the end of the 40s, the beginning of the 50s, uh, kind of that era where you know you have the the stereotypical noir trope setting, uh, but we take it to a different level where we get to kind of weave the librarian into it, and he kind of becomes. Frank's mentor and uh, uh, kind of guide into the the strange and the beyond, 
And uh, not only is it a lot of fun because we have this new character that's kind of uh, an opportunity, we have an opportunity to explore and, and walk through the occult with him, uh, but we also get to take the librarian who is, you know, a big part of the Wicked Library and has been and, and actually kind of bring him to the forefront and say, okay, what is his job and what does he do when he's not just kind of introducing uh, the episodes and when he's not just kind of uh, being the, the, the fun, campy part of the, the library? What does he actually do with his time? And, and that yeah. was a lot of fun, I think. Well, for me, it was a very interesting uh, journey because with Jeffrey Sykes Vermillion and, and Frank Enfield, these are guys that uh, while they themselves had a lot of input, as my characters always do, they were my creation. I gave them their names, um, and they were they're my they're mine. Um, but the Wicked Librarian is somebody else's. This was an individual. This was a character that existed long before I ever heard of the Wicked Library. And so when I was tasked with writing uh, this character. It was interesting because uh, I had to understand, can I create something new? Mm-hmm. Uh, what What is, is there an airtight canon that I have to stay within with this character? Or can he expand and reveal more of himself and reveal things about himself and, and even himself grow and change and reveal things about himself that might even be extreme? So as the writer, it's always been interesting each time I've turned in an episode because the librarian has has uh, changed and I have pushed the envelope on the librarian in every single episode. So there was always that question. It's like, when am I going to reach the pushback here? When are they going to tell me, um, you've gone a little too far this time? And so far you haven't. So I've been very grateful about that. Oh, yeah. It's it's a lot but of fun. We, we won't say never say never. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, you know, and listeners of the show probably know, you know, I created uh, The Lift with Victoria and Victoria actually came kind of as a sidekick from my, my first venture into podcasting whenever I was doing interviews with authors and storytellers of all different types. And I kind of wanted, um, you know, kind of a, a, someone that was kind of the guide, someone that was there as a mascot. And, and as she became more realized and, I became more interested in exploring her as a character. Obviously, she kind of evolved into this this very rich character that was a lot more than where she started. And I felt that the librarian kind of deserved the same thing. He's kind of been the mascot for the Wicked Library for so long. And I've always found him to be a compelling and interesting character. So, you know, I had come to you and said, I'd like to do this. I'd like to start to explore him as, as a larger character. But as part of that, I wanted to see if we could get maybe a, a detective who is versed in the paranormal and the occult and in some way we get him tied into the librarian because the librarian's job actually is that he goes out and collects all these strange and powerful books and other objects and stores them in his private collection to keep them out of public circulation. Things that are a little bit too dangerous to be out there for other people to use and to stumble upon. And because he runs the library and he kind of controls that world, he needs somebody else to kind of go out and grab that stuff. And who better than this detective that he kind of brings into his world and tests out and then decides, okay, maybe this guy can can be the one that does this. And we see him kind of testing him and helping him grow and become more confident in his own abilities uh, as, as things go on. So, you know, it, it's interesting to kind of see him as more of a big boss, you know, and uh, I won't give too much away, but we do get to a point eventually in, in the show where 
you know, Frank knows enough that he's actually a resource and there might even be a situation where he might have to help the librarian out of a jam. There could very well be. There could be. And it's very interesting to to watch the character arc from where he starts to where he ends up at the end of the first season. Yeah, and and I like the idea too. And there's a uh, there's a bit of a moth to the flame about Frank. I mean, there's a lot of times, just as is part of his nature, where he may be complaining or I've had enough of this kind of thing, and yet he keeps coming back for more. And he can't not come back for more because he's like an addict, and he would uh, rather throw himself into the volcano than turn away from the deeper and broader strange that uh, the librarian is leading him into. And another thing I wanted to make sure of was, while I absolutely love um, the occult detectives uh, that are, I'd like to think of as my grandparents, you know, the older from the, you know, the late uh, turn of the century, turn of the, you know, 19th century. Mm-hmm. And some of these earlier guys, they had a tendency to follow the same formula in every story so just like even with like a miss marple or that kind of character it's always the same uh location or a slightly different location it's always the same kind of characters the same kind of uh, capers that they get up to i didn't really want to just keep redoing the same formula over and over so that's why i took my own interest in a broad range of occult subject matter and a broad range of different cultures and allowed uh, the librarian to tax Frank with going on adventures in a broad range of cultures, a broad range of magical and occult styles, and in a broad range of places around the world. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's one of the things that, you know, we had talked about in the beginning is that we, we kind of have the opportunity by doing this to send him anywhere and everywhere and, and kind of delve in and, and explore lots of different things. So, I mean, we uh, we deal with, with Native American culture. We deal with... Um, uh, Middle Eastern culture. We deal with, you know, the 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 New Orleans, New Orleans, New Orleans Deep South culture. Um, there's all kinds of stuff, and and it's oh, it's even fascinating. Get into some Lovecraft homage too. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's 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 some it's a it's a great mix of a lot of different things, and uh, you know, for those who are just hearing this first episode and and are looking, you know, to what we're going to be giving as part of uh, you know the season moving forward, where we have one episode of, of this show per month, uh, there's just a lot to explore and there's a lot to unpack as we move forward. And for me too, I find that each episode that I do takes me on a journey. And there have been times uh, when I found myself stumped, not with what I'd call writer's block, but where uh, the journey that Frank Enfield was going on, the transformation that he was having to go through, trial by fire, I had to go through a bit myself in the writing of it. Um, And that's always an interesting thing for me. I mean, some of the stories are just absolutely wonderful that I write and they're fun and delicious and I just really enjoy them and and they zoom right through. And others really drag me over the coals myself. So I enjoy those journeys as the author myself. It's one of the things that I've always been fascinated about the the story process, Uh, you know, because there is a lot of you do a lot of your own work through stories, um, not just you, but I mean the the, the, the big you, but also you um, do a lot of exploration in, in into yourself. And there's a lot of working that occurs in these stories. Um, you know, and I, I think whenever we were talking about doing the interview, I had mentioned, you know, we can talk a little bit about how we're, you're you're working 
your own process through this, you know, kind of like Bowie did, because Bowie was into the occult. And if you're a fan of David Bowie's music and work and you don't know that he's doing magical working through his music, you're missing a whole lot. Yeah, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. I always, uh, when I do a story, particularly these kinds of stories, it's like I run a flag up the flagpole and see who salutes at what point along the flagpole. I'm hoping that anybody can enjoy them. Anybody can listen to them and hear a fun you know, yarn and a good romp. However, there is in each one of them also a very specific formula that I have embedded in there, a recipe for a particular kind of transformation, if you will, that it's always interesting to see which readers recognize it at that level. So there are these different levels going on that uh, hopefully have a nice harmony and don't get in each other's way, but that there's something there for a whole broad range of listeners to enjoy, a different place in the river to jump into. Yeah. I mean, you know, like I said, with Bowie's work, it's one of the things that I always thought was was interesting when I started learning about chaos magic and magic theory and, and that sort of thing is that not only are you doing a working through through what you're creating and what you're putting into it because of what your intention is and and kind of the, the process and the little trappings of the recipe that you put in there towards a certain direction. But there's also by getting it out there and having other people consume it and put their own energy into it, you're just building this thing up even stronger. Whether the folks that are listening to it are, are cognizant of that or not, they're still putting energy into it. Um, and it becomes this bigger, more powerful thing as, as it moves forward and gets more people listening to it and involved in it. Oh, absolutely. And each reader uh, or listener takes from a thing what they will. So um, it's like my, a story can be like opening a window and you can look out that window or you can jump through it. And whatever's waiting for you on the other side of that open window is what's waiting for you. And it's going to be different for each listener. Um, so I think that um, is one of the most powerful parts of really good storytelling. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about this specific episode. Uh, I think we're, we've, we're, we've gone far enough now that if people haven't heard uh, last week's episode now is is when they should stop and go back and listen to it. It's not like we just started to spoil things right out of the gate. Um, so, so let's talk a little bit about the library on the other side of the town. First of all, the title, which is very clever, because it's not just it's it's more than it than it sounds like. The, the, the phrase the other side of town means a little bit more than just the other side of town, right? It does. And um, for many, many decades, giving my age away here, um, myself and various other friends have referred to uh, the other side of town as the occult world. And not just the occult world, but the actual real place of magic. You know, the, the dark forest, the, the strange basement, the underbelly of where stuff really gets strange, where hex and juju live and touch you. And the things that go bump in the night can knock you down on your ass. So, you know, that was where the other side of the town came in. And there's a, there's a fun sort of um, flippancy about it, if you will. This sort of casual, oh, it's on the other side of town. You know, there's, so the, it implies a familiarity and a comfort with it that sort of keeps, um, if you're starting to get the shivers or the whim-whams, might help keep it a little bit away because there's a little bit of humor in there as well. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and and it's it's one of the things that I mean, occult means hidden, um, and it's one of the interesting things. I always I, I'm a, I'm a big fan personally of things that have more than one meaning, and I think that I enjoy the fact that there is the surface that you see, but below that and in the shadows behind that, there is more to it, and for a long time we've had this this kind of hidden subtext that the the library is not always the library. In other words, there's ways to get to the bigger library, but there is a physical library that exists in the real world, in the normal world, where everybody sees it and they walk in during the daytime and they get to see kind of, here's the library. But if you go to it in the right time and the right way, um, and you're invited to that part of the library, it's kind of like turning a corner and finding yourself in a completely different library. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that was um, a fun thing. I had uh, this the, the envision of this iron staircase that coils down, down, down into, the, into a basement in a real library that is sometimes there and sometimes not. So sometimes there's a basement and sometimes there's not. Sometimes there's a staircase and sometimes there's not. And so uh, Frank needs to, um, when he starts encountering the library and the librarian, he needs to get on board with how to navigate the times and places at which he can access that other side of, of things. And I think that's part of the magical journey uh, that he or anybody would undertake is understanding uh, when it's daylight and normal and it's time to go to the grocery store and when it's time to go into some strange terrain and, and get some, some work done. So it was um, a visual manifestation of something very unvisual and very unreal. Right. Yeah, and, and you're right. That's exactly, that's where you begin is, first of all, realizing that there is something else and then starting to understand that you can't always, you have, there's a certain process to get there. Uh, it's not just, okay, I want to be there. It, there's, there's, there's a ritual, there's a process, there is a formula that you have to go through in order to access that other level and, and that, that other information. Um, and, you know, it even goes to the point where, there's the daytime librarian and then there's the evening librarian. So we, we had uh, some, we have some great voice uh, actors and, and actresses that are involved in the show and Addison Peacock got to play um, the, the daytime librarian. And then she also played the other librarian. And then of course we have the librarian. Um, and I mean, I, it, 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 I get giddy when I think about it because there's from the very beginning, there's a very, there's a very, uh, deliberate way that things are being structured. And it's not like any good story. It's not until you start to get into chapter three and four and five that you start to see, okay, this is where we've been leading all this time. And this is how all this stuff starts to fit together. Um, but right. if you pay attention, it's, there's a huge payoff because there's little subtle things that you're, you're laying the groundwork for and little tiny clues that are given that on the surface, just like the occult, on the surface, it doesn't mean much. But once you get a little bit deeper in, then you start to see all those connections. And you, got, you start to see how all those things work together to make this larger tapestry. Exactly. And that's why I, uh, I see the episodes and I, I write them this way. It's like Legos. So that each one is the building block that connects to the one previously to it and you know lays the foundation for the next one going forward. So there's always a little prong at the end of the story that sort of hints or points the way to the next one. 
so that it is, as you say, um, certainly each story is a complete story in and of itself, but each one also points and sets up questions and uh, possibilities for uh, the next one. Like in this first one, um, the library on the other side of town, uh, Frank Enfield has lost his partner, Doug Cartwright, to a very bizarre magical experience that happens uh, before the story takes place, but he touches back on that. So his partner's gone. Don't know. Is he dead? Is he gone? Is he in some limbo place? Well, as it turns out, Frank is not, despite feeling very comfortable and confident and cocky about being a big, bad, you know, occult detective, there's a lot that he doesn't know and that there's a lot he needs to learn to finally understand uh, why uh, why Doug is gone and uh, what, if anything, can be done about that. Yeah, so we kind of set up a little bit of his... There's there's the there's the the initial journey and then there's always the the bigger picture the, the bigger journey as well, and uh, you, know, you kind of start to to lay the groundwork for the large quest through the small quest, and uh, we ha- we have some some great characters in this episode, um, and and you know as you mentioned there being a Lovecraftian element to it, um, it it's whenever Nico who's our composer and I started talking about creating the theme song for the show I said well it needs to kind of be Lovecraft meets 1940s grizzled detective noir slash uh, Lovecraft and uh, it was a very challenging task I think to set for him and I think he pulled it off rather well because we, we kind of get that true feel you know from the very beginning when the, when the music starts to play he absolutely does and the thing with that first episode is that the town that the library is set in Hudson, mm-hmm. which is in upstate New York, is a very real town. I lived in that town for two years, and it is as Lovecraftian a town as Lovecraft ever wrote about. <laughs> so to me, it was the perfect place for the story to be. Uh, it's not that every episode takes place in Hudson at all, but that it's a great place for it to be based. Another Lovecraftian homage for me is that uh, one of the characters, um, the old man, um, I, I love Lovecraft's uh, concept of the hideous old man. He has a story by that name, and he has hideous old men in most of his stories. And I think it's a great, um, you know, iconic trope. And so there's very much a hideous old man in this story. Oh, yeah. And he was so much fun to play. Uh, it's uh, You have some of these characters that are just so dark and... I don't know how to describe him. I mean, he's, he, you know, whenever we, uh, uh, we get into Matthias, is it Matthias? That's right. Right. Matthias. Yeah. It's been so long since I've done the, the, the acting for it. Um, but yeah, we get, we get into him and he is just, there's like this dark, deep, ancient evil that you feel. Um, and you know, just like everything else in this, this first episode and, and really to a certain extent in a lot of the episodes, he's not what he seems to be you know he's you, you get what you have on the surface where you know he seems like he's just the senile old man but he's playing frank kind of the whole time right yeah yeah well and it's also the idea that no matter where you're at on the magical spectrum that if you've been on that on the magical path more than uh, a, a short while whether you're on the good side of town or the bad side of town you are no longer what you seem because you are transformed into something that is less and less human, whether you're becoming good 
whether you're becoming bad or whether you're becoming just something very, very different that no longer acknowledges and recognizes and manifests typically human concepts of good and evil. And I think that's a running theme there too, is that these the characters in these stories, um, a lot of them make you wonder what is good and evil. Yeah, because there's not it's not necessarily it's not necessarily cut and dry. It's not necessarily black and white. There there is there's some bleed through on both sides. Yeah. And when you're when you're touching that stuff, it's not as cut and dry as um, the non-initiative. Hollywood would have you think. Right. And it's not it's not as uh, as simple as the non-initiate view of these things. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean that's that's one of the things that you know you kind of see the librarian over time start to try to get through to Frank that you know it's not it's not as simple as you think it is, and I think Frank kind of knows that a little bit because of his history, um, but but truly he doesn't. I don't think he gets the whole picture in the beginning. He's he thinks he knows more than he does. Exactly. And, and he very well, quickly starts he, to learn that he doesn't. Right. And each episode. Uh, he finds out just how much he doesn't know and just how much he gets dragged into places that are very, very unfamiliar to him. But still, he maintains that that swagger, that bravado that's like, oh, yeah, you know, got that covered. Snap, snap, you know, and yet he's, for lack of a better word, shitting his pants, <laughs> you know, at least right. theoretically. Yeah. Yeah, he has he has a little. I think there's a little bit of cockiness there that that uh, some of it is well earned, uh, and 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 then of course I think some of it is just kind of like if I act this way, then I will start to believe this way. So, you know, so it's right. like if I don't act like I'm not taken aback by, it, or if I don't if I act like I'm taken aback by this, then I'm going to get lost in it. So I have to pretend. Yeah. It's it's the old saying is like uh, fake it until you make it. Right? It's exactly. you have to kind of give yourself that as a life raft to, or, or a life preserver to hold on to and say, okay, here's my sanity because if I let go of this, then I'm going to lose myself and become truly insane. And there are quite a few points in, in this first season where he comes very close to losing the life preserver that he's holding on to. Yeah. Yeah. And that life preserver uh, is something that um for people on a magical path eventually they have to let go of anyway right and if they have a firm control on it they're going to have to throw it away of their own of their own volition because that's just you know there are constantly escalating stages of this kind of transformation and once you step on the carousel it's going you know whether you get off i mean you either keep on going or you die or you go insane and that's why you need to you know be very mindful of stepping on the carousel and i think that that's why um i frequently use the metaphor of virginity and um and magical practice that once you've truly stepped across that um across that barrier across that rubicon it's happening and going with 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 your complicity or without it so that's why it's really a good thing to make damn sure you know what you're doing when you step on. Yeah, that's that's a common thing that you hear about uh, practitioners as they start to, to to delve into the magical world and step on the magical path, as, as you mentioned, is that, you know, you do have to be careful because insanity is a, is a true possibility if you're not careful. Yeah. Well, and I think that insanity in some ways is the flip side of virginity in that it throws you off. It throws you off the carousel, so to speak. It throws you off the path if you're not capable of walking that path. 
Right. Without becoming a monster or a worse monster than humanity can stomach. So what were some of the challenges that you had with, with this first episode? I mean, I'm sure part of it was just kind of like you alluded to in the beginning, stepping into this world and, and, and starting to build it uh, with still being mindful of what came before. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would be a very large part of it because I was playing, you know, it was like the librarian, you know, I stepped in and very soon uh, it became clear to me that the librarian was a real figure. It was a figure that uh, did have a life of its own. So I had to get to know him and I'm still getting to know him. And with each episode, I get to know him more as he reveals more of himself to me. But um I think that was uh, a big challenge. It was also a big challenge in that I do, I am a big Lovecraft fan. So that first episode was, you know, my homage to the creepy New England town slash, you know, hideous old man um, trope. So I was trying to maintain that, uh, you know, capture that atmosphere while still uh, showing, you know, the beginnings of what um, Frank is all about introducing uh, the the partnership that he had previously to uh, to when this story starts and, and the groundwork that that plays in who he is and everything else going forward. I, another thing that was interesting for me too was that you, you mentioned, you know, insanity. Well, when the story starts, Frank has just gotten out of Bellevue. <laughs> right. <laughs> Just as it so happens. And, you know, maybe he belonged there. Maybe he didn't. Uh, maybe the crack in the cosmic egg that he underwent um, as a result of what happened uh, when his office is destroyed just really was a more devastating uh, magical uh, rupture that than he could deal with. So um, I'm trying to show uh, his own vulnerability as he tries to, you know, make his way back. And he comes to Hudson f- for the sole purpose of a little rest and recuperation. He's not coming there <laughs> looking for a job. Right. He's coming to a quiet, peaceful little New England town to rest and recoup. And he finds himself out of the frying pan into the fire, at the, to say the least. Yeah. So I was trying to set all that up. So I felt like I had a lot of balls in the air at, at once. And I was trying to make sure they didn't hit into each other while each keeping its own discreet and intriguing um, trajectory of movement. Yeah. So what did you learn about the librarian as you were going through this process? I mean, you said that you, you see him as kind of a, um, a real figure. And I've always kind of seen him as... I know you do a lot of work with uh, with with Coyote, and we actually get into that later in the season. But uh, I kind of see the librarian as maybe sort of cut from the same cloth, where he's kind of a trickster spirit. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that's one of the reasons that's intriguing to me about him, because there are tricksters in many world traditions, but mm-hmm. um, in um, in the United States or in the West or in um, you know Christianized countries we don't ha- really have um, a trickster per se so I wanted him to be something that was wholly magical wholly in keeping with uh, the occult initiatory uh, practice kind of model but he's not a guru he's not a, he's not uh, he can have a mentoring quality but he's not uh, the friendly master who's got his hand on your back helping you and guiding you along the way Right. So he's willing to 
shove you into progressively more difficult and challenging situations, which he does with every episode for Frank. Mm -hmm. And of course, he uh, has Frank's best interest in heart. He wants to see Frank succeed. But if Frank fails, that's no skin off his nose, ultimately, because the librarian is outside of the um, the normal duality, the paradigm of, of good and evil. He's outside the paradigm of nice and not nice. He is a pure entity, a pure essence in and of himself in that regard. So he is an open gate to allow Frank to progress as far or as not so far along all this as he is capable of going. He's also using Frank for his own ends. It's not uh, just being there as a friendly guide or anything. I mean, he's getting these uh, different books and items out of circulation and definitely using uh, Frank to go far and wide for these things where he himself does not go. I'm not going to say he can't go, uh, not to say that he doesn't go or hasn't gone or doesn't go, but for some reason he spends virtually all of his time in his library or very, very close to it. Right. So there's an enigmatic quality to the librarian that certainly is keeps me learning up to this moment as the you know the episode i'm working on right now right for the second season is uh all about more things about the librarian that he's just a never-ending story so uh he will never be uh, a cozy and frank talks about this at various times when he becomes more i don't want to say comfortable with the librarian but he starts to find a, a rhythm with the librarian, mm-hmm. uh, a tentative rhythm with the librarian. And I, at one point he's, you know, um, the, we're never going to be pals, but we're taking the measure of each other, you know, and that measure, that relationship grows with each episode. You mentioned in Eastern culture, we don't, or Western culture, I'm sorry, that we don't really have a lot of trickster spirits and a lot of trickster entities. But I know that is a, a tradition and an important part of kind of magical working and the occult. What is the importance of the trickster? And because it would seem that it's a lot easier, as you mentioned, for someone to just kind of mentor you and guide you along the path. So what is the the benefit in the tradition of having an entity that kind of knows the information but doesn't necessarily give you all the right answers all the time the trickster is uh critically critically important in all of the magical traditions that i have looked at Mm -hmm. and its purpose is uh, i don't think a person maybe in the Native American culture, a young first timer or a person just learning the ropes might get thrown in with a trickster with coyote. But generally it's somebody who's got a little bit of, uh, a little bit of water under their belt, so to speak. What the trickster does is he teaches you not to take yourself seriously. Not to, uh, he teaches you that your shit does stink and that you need to um, be both confident and humble at the same time. Confident of what you've actually learned and what you actually know and what you can actually do, but humble about your own place in the scheme of things, you know, because none of us is so big or so grand. And that's one of the major, if not the major pitfall in magical practice is that everybody starts thinking that they're the special one, you know, or the gift to the world or any of that crap. 
And uh, the trickster, like I said, the trickster will make you fall on your ass. The trickster will put the the banana peel, you know, under your heel. It's almost like the uh, like the uh, with a Luke Skywalker thing, where you know, let the force guide you. So instead of the kindly mentor showing you, the coyote or the trickster will show you five or six different paths five or six different options, five or six different things to choose from. And one of them will be the right one. So he's given it to you. But there are also some other less accurate or more horrible choices that he's also giving you. <laughs> if you choose the correct one, cool. Then he'll take you to the next step and let you choose from the next five things. If not, oh well, no skin off his nose. So there's that that shows you that if you fail, who cares? You're just another in a long, endless line of failures. If you succeed, then great. You get to go to the next step and earn what you've earned. So I think that's why uh, why that why the coyote is so critically important. Because in my it, where, wherever I've paddled, I would always see that that was the number one failing of, of people that I've encountered in the magical traditions that didn't uh, have coyote as a, as a central place. You know, if you can't laugh at yourself and make ballyhoo of yourself, then you're doomed, either in life or magic. Yeah, there's also kind of like a, a challenge and a test to it, right? I mean, uh, absolutely. it's funny because you mentioned Luke Skywalker. And if you look at Luke and his relationship with Yoda, when they first meet each other, Yoda is testing him and basically trying to get his ire up and, and trying to get him to, um, you know, show how impatient he is to learn. Exactly. <clears throat> and, and then once, once, you know, Luke gets a little bit of respect then at that point you see that their relationship changes and develops and it becomes more you know of a, a, a traditional mentor mentee relationship where uh but i mean you know as as you say the humor is always there he's always kind of you know giving him a little poke in the ribs here and saying you know you're, you're taking yourself a little bit too seriously now you need to stand back and, and take yeah. a longer view yeah and that's why uh the tricksters in various forms figure into uh, Frank Enfield's formula in many places, um, not only with the uh, librarian himself, uh, which is why Frank Enfield understands that he can never really uh, be 100% comfortable and, and, and relaxed, and he, he will never take the librarian for granted because of that element, you know, when he, you know, when he uh, encounters Coyote. And the same with the djinn. The djinn are also very much uh, the trickster kind mm -hmm. of uh, thing because these are all characters and creatures that exist outside the human paradigm. So they know. They know what the human is. So they're, they're, they don't hold it in any great esteem or regard. And uh, if you want to move outside of the ordinary human sphere, you need to learn to take humanity not so seriously as well, including, and first and foremost, yourself. Right. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, the artwork. I mean, we can wrap up with that. The um, we, We've done a lot of work over the years with, with the Wicked Library with not only authors and composers, but also with folks that create kind of the, the visual aspect of it. And the podcast being really more of an audio medium, uh, that's where we, we spend a lot of our effort is in the sound of the, the voice and the sound of the music and, you know, the sound effects for The Private Collector. It's actually one of the, the shows where we actually have delved into the, uh, the the murky waters and the sometimes very deep waters of adding special effects to uh, a story because it's, it's, it's a tough balance sometimes between how much is too much and distracts from the story and how much 
actually enhances and becomes a character in the story. And that's kind of always been my litmus test for sound is, is the sound effect actually a character in the story? Does it have a purpose uh, to kind of lead you to a certain direction? But the visual aspect of it, I think, at least for me as a, as a, as a creator, and, and I, I think a lot for a lot of the authors as well, there's something special about kind of seeing your characters realized and, and getting, it, it kind of almost gives you another level to it because all this takes place up in your head and in the ears, but when you get to the visual aspect of it, it kind of solidifies certain things. Oh yeah, and I'll tell you what's interesting, what's been interesting for me is over the years, different people have uh, looked at my work or done different things with my work and I was just, oh my God, you just don't even begin to get the same feeling or vibe that I have. <laughs> but with working with uh, with everybody with the Wicked Library, I've just been blown away by how seamlessly just right off the bat, you know, with the first try, the you know nailed it on the head yeah. with what I had in mind with both uh, visuals, like the the image of the private collector, the image of Frank Enfield in the uh, the poster for it is just sublime. The voices that have been selected for each of my characters, not only for the Wicked Library but for other stories, have been amazing. Um, the music has been just spot on. So I think that uh, the synergy that's been uh, going on here the, between the collaboration between your genius of putting the right voices and the right, you know, whether whether it was your own voice or uh, whoever's voice uh, for the, the whole package of the ensemble and then the music and all the rest of it has just been uh, a sheer delight for me. I mean, I felt like my work has truly come alive and I think that's helped me understand my own work better because when I see my work reflected back to me as a, as a mirror image of what's in my head, that's kind of staggering. Yeah. I mean, it, I think it, it, it helps a lot. Uh, and you know, a lot of times whenever I'm putting this stuff together, it's, it's a base, it's basically saying, you know, who is the, who is the right fit for this voice uh, or for this character? And we, we have a, a huge cast now of, of voice actors that I get to draw from. Uh, but it, it was also nice starting this out and saying, okay, when you write this, I'm going to be doing most of the narration. And, you know, full disclosure, one of the reasons is because I am free. Uh, I don't charge myself anything to do voice work. So um, <laughs> having the main character uh, be somebody that, well, be me, uh, makes it a lot easier to, to kind of put it together. But I think it also helps when you're writing a piece to kind of know what the voice is going to be and, and who the vocal, who, who's going to handle the vocal aspect of it. Because obviously we have Nelson handling uh, the librarian and we have me handling Frank and uh, a myriad of other characters that, that show up from time to time. Uh, but, you know, also reaching into, you know, like when we did the um, the story with the gin, we, we actually reached out to uh, someone who has the right accent and comes from the right background to be able to pull that off. And the same thing whenever we uh, looked at, you know, different voice actors for, like, Erica Sanderson is not from New Orleans, but we do have a character from New Orleans that she plays, and she's a great mimic, and she managed to kind of pick up that accent and deliver it. And I, it was kind of important that we had the right voice for that part, and for every part, really. Yeah, yeah. I, I have a, a, a thing about that myself where, I mean, I'm not <clears throat> an airtight, you know, rigid stickler about it, but where possible... I prefer to use 
voices, you know, if I'm using a, a person of a non-white, non-Western origin, I would like to use uh, voice actors of that origin. Not only can they do it better, but that it's it's respectful, right? You know, but if that's not possible, then someone that really can do it is uh, is is certainly more than acceptable. One of my absolute favorite. Um, Jamaican accents who is just absolutely sublime is this black actor from California. I mean, I was blown away when I found out that he wasn't actually from Jamaica um, since he does such a fantastic job. And when I heard him speak in his normal California dude voice, I was like, oh, this is brilliant, you know. But at least it was giving a black actor, he played a role in one of my favorite movies as as a Jamaican. And um, so it was it was fantastic but it also showed me you don't have to be you know you can if you know what you're doing i'm not i'm not native american and yet i write about coyote so if you get it and you really do uh, honor and justice to what the essence of that uh voice that story that character is then then that works absolutely all right. Well, um, okay. we will we will reconvene here in a few weeks whenever the next episodes roll out. That sounds good, Dan. All right. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.